Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Master in for Bonnie and Paul on this Wednesday. One of the industries we've covered a lot, and understandably so, throughout the pandemic is the hospitality industry. Anything connected with traveling and tourism, um, the airlines, of course, have been just shut down or closed dramatically. Uh, Their businesses really uh, just dropped as a result of the pandemic, and understandably so. Well, our next guest and uh, his company certainly plays into this. We're talking about the Express Spa Group. Ticker is XSPA. They trade publicly. Uh, It's about $112 million dollar market cap company. It is the world's largest airport spa company. I've used them at an airport while traveling, and I'm sure you have too. Um, so let's get into what their business has been like and how they are dealing with the pandemic and what the future looks like. Doug Satsman is CEO of Express Spa, joining us on the phone in New York City. Doug, nice to have you here on Bloomberg. How are you? I'm great. Uh, good morning. Thanks, Carol, for having us on. Well, it's great to have you here. Tell me a little bit about what your world has been like. Take me back to March and, and what it's been like since then. So in March, we all know uh, what happened across uh, our community and communities around the world. Um, Our core business has been airport spas. We're the largest global uh, spa operator in airports. And we were deemed a non-essential use, appropriately so, you know, by the end of March, closed all of our spas down globally. Uh, And then uh, we had an idea from our chairman, uh, Bruce Bernstein, could we offer COVID testing during this time and leverage the real estate we have in the spas. So we started a a down and dirty project with a small group of people. And in 75 days, we went from idea to concept to pilot and got our first one open in June in JFK Terminal 4. And since then, we've been uh, continuing to roll out express check clinics, which do offer COVID testing for airport employees, TSA agents, and uh, anyone who works at the airport as well as travelers. Um, and we have been expanding around the country. We're focusing domestically first, and then we can look uh, broader. Right. So like, we're, so what's your expectation moving forward? And, and, and as you continue to, I'm assuming, branched out, out I, I know there was a headline, uh, was it just yesterday or on Monday, that you guys are going to start offering on-site testing from select cities for nonstop flights. I think this was for Hawaii specifically. But how do you continue to kind of embrace the environment we are and kind of help your company as well as the airline industry kind of get back to normal? So what what we're finding is it's the the private companies that are leading the way, trying to figure out the the best path for um, uh, safe travel and returning consumer confidence. So it's the airlines, it's testing companies like us, and some health app companies um, uh, like the Common Pass, who we're, we're partnering with to develop a process to partner with the airlines and destination cities or states um, and, and to connect travelers through uh, getting tested and then being able to convey their negative results and satisfy uh, getting out of quarantine requirements or other requirements to be admitted into you know, a country or a state. We started with Hawaii becoming mm-hmm. one of their trusted testing partners, and then we've had a, several recent announcements with United and with JetBlue and with Hawaiian Airlines where we have uh, partnerships now with the three airlines to partner with them on select cities 
Often we're focusing on Hawaii right now, but we're looking at transatlantic destinations and, and other destinations around the world. Um, so, in fact, uh, with JetBlue as an example, um, we are opening a second unit in Boston where we already have one express check, but we're opening a second one in their terminal uh, to help facilitate uh, Boston as being a hub for them to uh, help open up more travel to more destinations. And uh, and there's other airlines we're speaking with as well, but this, these are the groups that are fueling the, the way. And then we're partnering with the airports to get either leverage existing real estate that we have from our spa business, but mm-hmm. more often than not, we're being offered new spaces that are more more convenient for travelers like pre-security. I have to say the investment space has written that this has kind of created a resurgence and reincarnation for you guys as a company. And I do wonder, you know, how does this kind of factor into future longer term strategy at this point? Or is this just kind of a stopgap to get through? Uh, well, it, it started as a stopgap to get through. You know, our, our mm-hmm. business was closed and this was a pivot that allowed us to uh, serve the airport community which, where we've worked. But what's happened, as we've learned through the medical side, we are, uh, we are developing a new concept um, that takes what we've learned from health and wellness, our history, what we've learned from medical, and uh, are developing it to uh, launch next year, which will you know, continue with things like testing. It'll run alongside Express Check. Um, it could run alongside Express Spas. But in a post-COVID world, um, things have definitely changed and yeah. what travelers and employees are looking for are, are new services that aren't offered at airports. And we're uniquely positioned uh, to deliver that with our experience operating in the environment and what we've learned now working with doctors in our medical side. Right, and my understanding is you guys doing testing for things like uh, the regular flu and mono uh, and offering flu vaccines too, which is which is pretty fa- fascinating. How quickly, just got about 20 seconds here, 25 seconds, how quickly though do you, you're not abandoning the spa business or are you? Uh, we haven't abandoned the spa business, but we're watching traffic to mm-hmm. continue up. And we've been successful in raising funds to help fuel uh, future growth expansions. Um, and to have a very solid balance sheet for investors to, to stay in with us. Well, I'll be fascinated to check in with you throughout uh, 2021 to uh, see how it's all going, especially as you guys have pivoted. Doug, uh, Doug Satzman, he is CEO of Express Spa on the phone in New York. That stock, by the way, down 41% in 2020. And I'm just going to put that out there. So we've got the perfect guest to talk about that, specifically when it comes to investing in wine. He's got an interesting platform out there. Irv Goldman is with us, CEO at Acker, and he joins us on the phone in New York. Irv, nice to have you here. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about, because um, I've covered what you guys are uh, up to over the last couple of years. Tell us about, because you've got a new wine markets and analytics platform. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Okay, so what we wanted to do was we wanted to create a uh, digital data and analytical platform to give uh, people invest, uh, interested in investing in wine uh, a sophisticated tool to really analyze the wine market. Right. Uh, that does, does really, up to this point, has never existed. There have been just some generic wine indexes, but we created... Uh, the most comprehensive wine indexing and analytical tool 
um, in the market. And so, kind of uh, like we were, a Bloomberg for wine, it almost sounds like it is. It is. <laughs> or, or you actually, hope it is. Given that I had a thirty-five years in financial <laughs> markets and was very friendly with Michael at the beginning of my career, yes, we we, well, we did do it. We, well, but, we created a Bloomberg for wine. So, actually. so before we get into exactly the analytics involved in it, because I am curious about that and how it works, tell me why wine is a good investment. So it's very interesting. Wine is actually outside of the S&P, if you take all the asset classes, the second best performing asset class over time. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, it is about seven times less volatile in terms of its annual returns than all the equity markets. So it is a uh, relatively uh, non-volatile uh, high-performing asset. The uh, average return of wine over 15 years is almost nine and a half percent, and it's uh, you know for people looking to diversify, uh, it's been a, a, a really well-performing asset class. And if you can, there's a lot of smart money that's involved. And yeah. What we've been doing is providing a platform for the average consumer to take advantage of it. So tell me how it works, because if I go to AckerWines.com, I can certainly shop and I can buy wine, but it's a lot more than that is what you're saying, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's a basically there's two things. Um, you can take any one of our 200 uh, proprietary wine indices to analyze either the broad market or We've broken it down to looking at regions, looking uh, at vintages, looking at specific producers, and actually looking at any specific wine. And you can literally compare their its performance against any other wine index, mm-hmm. any other financial asset, and you could really get into the, the minutiae, if you will, uh, in a very discreet way of analyzing uh, a particular wine. So just like you can on a Bloomberg monitor do with equities, you can look at the broader markets, you can look at, you know, sectors, and then you can look at specific stocks and you can compare them. And that's what you can now do with wine. Which is interesting. So, you know, when somebody invests in wine, do they actually, you know, take possession of the bottles? Can they take possession of the bottles? Do they own them? Can they drink them or can they sell them or they can do kind of all of that? They can do all of it. So a lot of so, uh, you know, when you look at the market, there are uh, there is a, a large segment of the market where they, from an investment standpoint, people will buy wine and then have them professionally stored, and over a period of time of five or ten years, and those people then ultimately sell them and pick up their capital gains. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And then there are those people that like to do that, but also drink part of their cellar and they can just access it any time they want from these professional storage uh, facilities. And right. you just call up and say, I want to drink this wine this week. Can you pull it and send it to me? And that's that's really how it works. It's so, a combination of all. So the data, obviously, the analytics are only as good as the data it's based on. Where is the data coming from at this point and how reliable? I mean, what kind of back testing can you do? Because wine can be so fickle. You could have yes. a great brand, a great region, but you can have an off year. And unfortunately, um, Irv, I've only got about 45 seconds left. Okay. So um, you can basically go through and look 
at that specific level of detail on the platform, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're able to analyze that where you haven't been able to do that before. Interesting. But where are you getting all the data from? Just quickly. So the data, I'm sorry, the data uh, comes from all, all the data, and we did this specifically, and no right. one's uh, rushing, is that we have 20 years of Acker's auction data. Okay. And we represent, this year we were 35% of the global market. Mm-hmm. Historically, we're 25%, so we think it's very representative. We cleaned 20 years worth of data. Got it. And we got it to, we, we have... Uh, discrete parts of information about the data that no one else has. Irv, my apologies, we've got to run, but you've got to come back and do more because I find it fascinating. Irv Goldman, he's CEO at Acker. Check him out at uh, ackerwines.com. So we've definitely covered the equity markets on this Wednesday, but let's get another check on what's going on when it comes to fixed income. Perfect guest to do that. Stephen Kane is Group Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at TCW. They've got roughly $225 billion in assets under management that as of the end of the second quarter, he joins us uh, on the phone in LA. Stephen, good to have you here with us. So getting ready, just a few more days here in the trading, uh, actually just today and tomorrow, (laughs) to wrap up 2020. Uh, What a year it's been to say the least. When you look at the fixed income trade, do you anticipate that there will still be a very low rate environment and a lot of easy money sloshing around? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, and good morning. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I, I think the, uh, it, it is uh, a good time to put 2020 in the rearview mirror. I uh, was reading an article this morning, actually, that summed up 2020 pretty well, that um, it's been a bull market for risk assets and a, and a bear market for humans. So It's our story. We, we, it's, I've been quoting that story left and right because it has stayed with me. I think it ran last week. Um, that, yeah. is, that is 2020, right, in a headline. Yeah, so we can, we can certainly hope that 2021 ends the bear market for humans at a minimum. Um, yeah. But in terms of uh, the financial markets and what we expect uh, going forward, I think that um, certainly with rates, um, I think the Fed is very committed to keeping <clears throat> the front end of the curve anchored and uh, purchasing assets uh, at a high rate in 2021. So I think that um, certainly volatility in the Treasury market is likely to be muted, though we do expect some upward drift at the long end of the curve as inflation pressures begin to build uh, throughout the year. <clears throat> in terms of the uh, the credit markets, um, you know, we've pretty much round tripped in terms of uh, spreads from where we were a year ago. So investment grade spreads are about 90 basis points, high yield spreads around 350 basis points. This is, you know, if you if you went to sleep at the end of last year and woke up today, you'd think it was a very quiet year in 2020. And as we know, it was anything uh, but. Um, So 2021 is likely to be uh, certainly less volatile, but we think there's still going to be uh, quite a bit of uh, turmoil and winners and losers, um, you know, in the corporate sector, you know, leading to uh, disparate returns. So we do think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for active managers, though, mm. but the overall market's like, likely to be a lot less volatile. It's like you were reading into Bloomberg this morning. I'm like so impressed, yeah. Steve. Uh, what's interesting, and just to give um, props where it's due, uh, Michael Regan of Bloomberg Businessweek gets the story he did. Uh, it's been a great year for stocks in a bear market for humans. It just has stayed with me since I've read it and this whole idea of, you know, investors just again and again ignoring the pain of the pandemic and betting on a future where 
where companies rely less on labor. And that's something we just talked about with Sarah Ponzak, just this kind of human capital. It's just not as valuable uh, and companies aren't valuing it as much. And, you know, the expectation that as a result, we might not have as much hiring and labor's coming back to the workforce next year. And I do wonder what that could potentially mean in terms of economic momentum, Steve, come 2021. Well, I, th- I think what it means is that while you may see the overall economy grow at a reasonable pace, you know, it may grow low single digits in aggregate, you're going to see certain sectors of the economy doing much better than others. And I think you're going to see some areas of the uh, economy that are under stress right now, travel, leisure, uh, retail, continue to face pressure, you know, even though yeah. uh, the vaccines can allow them to, to open up. So, we think that's going to mean that credit work is going to be extremely important. It's going to be important to be in the right sectors of the fixed income market and the right credits uh, as well. And we think another area of the uh, fixed income markets and uh, economy that are going to be affected is commercial real estate. Um, yeah, when is that going to happen? I mean, I walk up and down, and I know New York City is maybe a city unlike you know no other, but man, the amount of empty space, especially retail space, um, is pretty remarkable. And is it Amazon's just going to eat it all up and do distribution centers everywhere? I think not. But how do you see it? Well, we think, I mean, the the transition away from uh, retail has been going on for some period right. of time, and 2020 accelerated the, the trend to e-commerce. And we're seeing, um, you know, the retail sector under quite a bit of stress and a lot of retailers, um, you know, going bankrupt. And we think that is going to uh, lead to defaults and bankruptcies, you know, in retail malls, particularly the B and C ones. I think the, you know, the A-class uh, retail properties will find a way to repurpose their space and and uh, stay uh, stay relevant, if you will. But uh, there is going to be quite a bit of stress in in the retail area, and we also think in in the office area, the work right. from home trend we think is one that's here to stay, and um, you're already beginning to see vacancies uh, increase in some urban. Um, uh, business districts, and we think that is also going to lead to some uh, pressure on commercial real estate. Steve, as well. I'm going to put out another story on Twitter that I think you might find interesting. It talks about the big COVID changes in the world economy are only just beginning, and just kind of goes through some of them and the impact it will be by our and uh, uh, Curry and uh, some of the other members of the Bloomberg team, which is I think again another must read. Steve Kane, thank you so much, Group Managing Director of at TCW, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. We're just getting ready to wrap up here on Bloomberg Markets. Carol Masser in for Paul and Vani, but we have a great guest to wrap up our program on this Wednesday. And it has to do with something known as offsite dining. Uh, I hadn't heard about this, but apparently it is a new thing. So let's talk about this because it's a growing thing and it's impacting certainly a market uh, that we know has been really impacted by the pandemic specifically. So let's get into it with uh, Michael uh, Montagna, Montagano, excuse me, Michael Montagano. He is CEO of Kitchens United and he joins us on the phone in Los Angeles. Michael, it's nice to have you here with us. Um, tell us, remind our audience a little bit of what you are doing, because we've definitely talked about it here at Bloomberg, but remind our audience what you guys are off to and when it comes to this whole growing world of off-premise dining. Thank you, Carol, and it's great to be here. Thank yeah. you for having me on. Um, yeah, look, our our business is focused on a tool to enable existing restaurant brands to capture what is a changing consumer preference towards off-premise. 
Um, that entails for us uh, providing a CapEx light way for restaurant brands to expand into new trade areas, which in our centers, we have kitchen centers that generally have 10 to 15 restaurant brands that operate within them in their own four wall units. And part of that value proposition that we offer is not only a way to stand up uh, a restaurant in a new trade area and, and, and a fraction of the CapEx investment in time, but also while they cook their own food to ensure there is consistency in the quality uh, of the cuisine, uh, we handle most everything else from cleaning and sanitization to management of the front of the house. And then we have a consumer marketing channel that enables consumers uh, to order from more than one concept. So if you have different taste preferences within your household, whether that's you know, my son wanting pizza for the night, but my wife wanting sushi and, and I wanting salad, we can order that under one ticket. And so we deliver a fair amount of volume to our restaurant partners that occupy our premises as well. Yeah. Um, so that's the general business model and, and how what we're doing through this time to uh, help enable restaurants to um, navigate these very challenging times. You know, and I know you have been raising capital as well in terms of, uh, you know, supporting your expansion plans. Tell us about the growth that you have been seeing. And I am curious about, particularly in the pandemic, what kind of growth you've seen. Yeah, look, uh, we're very fortunate that our facilities are full. Um, we yeah. have great restaurant partners um, that we operate hand in hand with, and, and they're doing quite well um, through this through this time period as well. We've been laser focused on our own unit economics and building a foundational business that can scale. Um, this, at the same time, critical to that is making sure that our restaurant par- partners can operate profitably uh, within our sites as well. We are very fortunate that uh, Google Ventures, GV, is the largest shareholder in the company alongside you know, great blue chip investors like Fidelity Investments and large real estate funds like RxR Realty and Divco West. Um, and, you know, as we continue to grow and scale our business, uh, you know, we intend to continue to lean on uh, the capital markets to help fund our expansion as we enter into our Series C raise in the middle part of next year. So you're in Chicago, Pasadena, Scottsdale, Austin, if I'm looking at your website and reading it correctly. And to me, it almost sounds like kind of a new take, new version, an innovative take on food courts. Yeah, exactly right. You know, our focus, you know, through our our existing facilities has been driving consumer preference um, to our restaurant brands um, in in the way that consumers want it. And, you know, this whole idea of off-premise certainly has accelerated through COVID, but is really nothing new. Uh, we are consider ourselves to be a pioneer in the industry being founded in 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, part of that, when we got into this, we saw the trends. Uh, the trends were, you know, 20% CAGR year over year for delivery for the years leading up to COVID. And you look at the trends elsewhere around the world, uh, whether that's the Middle East or Asia, parts of Europe that have seen delivery penetration uh, to the tune of 50% plus, while we in the U.S. have seen that, you know, not including drive-through around 7 to 10%. Yeah. And so there was, there we were lagging the rest of the world. And, and clearly with the trends that we saw from retail over the past decade, that consumer preference for convenience and omni-channel uh, with the market power uh, and growing strength of millennials and Gen Z, um, that there would be new ways that consumers would, and new areas where consumers would like to consume their food. Um, right. That proved to be accelerated through COVID. Um, it was definitely jarring uh, to many. Um, I think uh, 
that S adoption curve stays the same. We're on a you know very steep slope of it, uh, but you know we have been a tool in that process where, like you said, on on what is more of a traditional food court, right. uh, but one in a virtual nature that allows consumers to have choice. Uh, and allows restaurant brands to drive the same volume through smaller footprints. Hey, listen, I do wonder, Michael, and we've just got about a minute and a half left here. I mean, do, will you say yes to anybody in terms of restaurants, or do you think about kind of the mix that you are offering at a specific location? You know, it's an excellent question, Carol. We're very data-focused as a company. It's not surprising when your largest shareholder is Google Ventures. Um, <laughs> we, 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 you know, tailor or curate our facilities in a way that we're providing ultimate choice to our end consumer, mm-hmm. but also uh, work with brands that we know can be successful in that particular trade area. And so, right. yes, we are looking for a cohesive group of brands um, that are synergistic to each other and provide the end consumer you know, ultimate choice and not to be cliche to our brand of Kitchen United Mix, but you know, a, a healthy mix of different options. That's really cool. Um, I don't see New York on it. It Just quickly, 30 seconds, is New York something you guys would consider or is that kind of just a tough market to, to come into? Very, very quickly, if you could. Uh, we absolutely are coming to New York City. Uh, we are under construction at a site in Man, uh, Manhattan at 38th and 8th. And ah. you know, we're excited to serve the people in New York City very, very soon. All right. Very cool. Um, Michael, come back because I'd love to hear more on what you guys are doing and and hear more as you continue to grow. Michael Montagano, he is CEO at Kitchens United. Really interesting take in terms of what they are doing and bringing different restaurant brands together under one roof. Uh, Joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. All right. That'll do it for this edition of Bloomberg Markets. Carol Masser in for Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.